This is the UHN Oral History Project, conversations with former leaders of the University Health Network, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm Christian Cote from UHN Public Affairs, and today's guest, Dr. Bernie Langer. Dr. Langer is a renowned surgeon who helped transform the practice of surgery in Canada. He's the recipient of numerous awards, including Canada's highest civilian honour, Officer of the Order of Canada, and he's a member of the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. Dr. Bernie Langer, welcome to the UHN Oral History Project. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I always like to start with our guests going back in time to what shaped them. So if we could start, Bernie, with your parents were Polish Jews who emigrated to Canada prior to World War I. You were born in Toronto in 1932, and you grew up in the College Bathurst area during the Depression and in the shadow of World War II. Give us a sense of how those events and times shape you and the, your values and outlook on life. Well, that is a long story, but <laughs> I'll try to be brief. Um, the community I grew up in was a predominantly uh, immigrant Jewish community. And uh, there was a real sense of family and community. Um, the people who came over had very little, often brought over by the first relative that arrived and got a job, like my uncle, who was the oldest of his siblings. And um, when he had enough money, he began to bring the other siblings over and then their parents. And those communities were pretty close-knit um, and it wasn't until the next generation where people like me grew up and moved outside that community. There was also a serious work ethic and uh, a respect for learning. And so um, I was never in doubt when... I was a kid that uh, I would go to university even though my oldest siblings did not hmm. because the family couldn't afford to send them. They had to get work. So I was the lucky one being the youngest and uh, I got to go to university. You know, and some of my background research to prepare for this, I understand actually your first career aspiration was as a mechanic? When I was... A kid, I loved to work with my hands. So I liked drawing, I liked making cutouts, and I liked taking things apart to see how they worked and putting them back together again. Not far off, I guess, from the skills of surgery. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I also understand, uh, I guess, as you got later into your teen years, that pursuing a career in actuarial science was uh, something that you were thinking of? Yes, uh, in high school, I loved mathematics, and I was very good at it, so I considered doing actuarial science in university. Um, but on our final year, I had a meeting with our guidance counselor, and uh, he pointed out to me that the good jobs for graduates of actuarial, actuarial science were insurance companies and banks and neither of those institutions hired Jews. So I looked really? around and, yes. 
We're talking Toronto back in the 1950s. Well, that was the culture then. And um, this was an open fact? It was not advertised, but it was known well enough so that our guidance counselor, who was not Jewish, knew about it. Wow. Was that disappointing to you or just a fact of life? It was a fact of life. Nothing you ruminated over or said, no, what was me? No. I had no idea what an actuary was. <laughs> <laughs> I just knew that it was a university career in mathematics, and um, I liked it. Wow. So I understand you went to Harvard Collegiate. Yes. And then U of T Med School with the idea of being a family doctor. But in your final year, you again pivot in terms of your career direction, and you turn to surgery. What was it about surgery? Well, I liked the fact that surgery involved making a specific diagnosis and doing something definitive about it. And also it involved manual skills. Using your hands. Yeah. The mechanics. Which skills. I really liked. Yeah. And also I I mean I met then for the first time a young surgeon who loved his work, was very good at it, and he was my role model at that time. That was Griff Pearson. Who went on to establish the lung division here yes. in terms of surgery yes. at Toronto General. Absolutely. So, Bernie, you complete your surgical training in 1962. What were your job prospects after that graduation? at Toronto hospitals? Well, during my training, I had had a number of conversations with David Bonin at the Mount Sinai, uh, who was keen to get me to commit to coming to the Sinai. But I really enjoyed working with the group at the General, so I made no decision. Uh, Actually, after my first year of training at the Children's, I loved children's surgery, and I spoke to the head of surgery at the Children's to see whether there was an opportunity to train in children's surgery at the end of it. And um, he was not dismissive, but <laughs> promised nothing. So I carried on with my training, and I had an annual conversation with each of them. And when I, in the middle of my final year, uh, wrote the Royal College examinations and passed, uh, I was offered a job at the Children's Hospital. And um, then, by that time, after six years of training, I was not keen to do more resident training. So I approached Fred Kurgan, who was chief at the general and chair of the department, and asked him uh, if I had, uh, if there was an opportunity for me to come and work at the general. And after some consultation with his staff, he came back and told me yes. And 
So I turned down the children's, and the condition was that I go to the States for six months and get some added training in cancer treatment by chemotherapy. This is something very new, which uh, surgeons knew nothing about, and there were physicians who were then being trained with the use of chemotherapeutic drugs and solid tumors. So he wanted to have someone in surgery who is up to date. So that was it. I spent six months traveling around visiting cancer centers, uh, spending three months at the MD Anderson in Texas learning about regional chemotherapy, and then um, borrowed money to go to Boston for six more months to work in Francis Moore's lab at the Peter Bent Brigham. Francis Moore was uh, a pioneer in the surgical physiology and uh, basic underlying principles of the management of really sick patients. And I wanted to go there. And it was a great experience, except his major interest then was in being the first person to successfully transplant a liver in the human. So I was one of many people who was working in the lab with him on that and trying to keep his dogs alive at night. And that's what piqued my interest in surgery of the liver. That's right. That would come back in the 80s, and, wouldn't it? Mm. We'll get to that. But... Let's not let this moment go when you finally do return from these stints in 63 to take your position at Toronto General. There's a special significance to that hiring, your hiring, correct? Yes. Uh, I was the first Jew to be hired to the full-time surgical staff at the Toronto General Hospital. Um, it was a time of change. Uh, it, it was waiting to happen, and I was lucky enough to be the person who arrived when they were prepared for it to happen. Were you aware of these circumstances, this situation at the time? Yes. How does it affect your outlook and, and you know, where, where you looked for job opportunities? Well, I didn't expect that I would have a job opportunity at the general. I went there to get the training. And... Um, I had no problem in fitting in with the rest of the residents and with the staff. And it wasn't actually until the end of my training that I thought there might be an opportunity for get that job. When I look at the research on your career, when you were entered into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, the dedication uh, about your career that they that struck me is, quote, it's a turning point in breaking down some of the anti-Semitic barriers and surgeries that existed at the time. What do you think of that as part of your dedication? Well, I think it's true. It was something that was waiting to happen. The general culture in the city of Toronto was changing after the Second World War. Um, Barney Barris had been appointed in medicine. So... I mean, it was obvious that this was going to happen at some point in time. 
You're listening to the UHN Oral History Project, conversations with former leaders of the University Health Network, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm Christian Cote from UHM Public Affairs, and today we're joined by Dr. Bernie Langer. Okay, so we're in 1963. <clears throat> You've just returned from your training in Boston where you worked partially in, in liver, tra- liver transplantation. And when you return, there is essentially no liver surgery, let alone transplantation, going on in Toronto. Why was that? Well, liver surgery is very difficult stuff and dangerous stuff to operate on the liver. And uh, it was being done in a few centers, but in most places there was no liver surgery. It wasn't unique for Toronto. Um, There were tremendous advances in anesthesia and in the understanding of managing patients who were unstable in the operating room. So uh, the time, the times had allowed more complex technical surgery to evolve. But my understanding is when you were returning, you found this situation, you set out to change that. Well, I knew it was being done differently elsewhere. And um, we had one kind of operation on the, uh, on the liver that was being done. It wasn't directly on the liver itself, but uh, patients with chronic liver disease and a lot of scarring the liver would develop uh, a problem because blood couldn't get through the liver because of the dense scar. <clears throat> and they would end up with bleeding from large veins inside their stomach and esophagus. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the general surgeons looked after these patients. If they survived their hemorrhage, then there was an operation that could be done on the veins going into the liver. But general surgeons weren't trained in vein surgery. So the cardiovascular surgeons would operate on the veins. And if they lived, fine. Many of them died because of their chronic liver disease. But the point was that general surgeons were very much involved in trying to keep these people alive so that they could have an operation done by somebody else. So when I came back, I decided that general surgeons should be doing that operation. And I had one of the cardiac surgeons, Jimmy Key, show me how to do one. And then... I began doing the shunt operations. And uh, I had also obtained a grant to do a study of uh, liver transplantation in the dog. And so I developed the technical skills in the dog lab to be able to transplant a liver, and that involved sewing veins. And so I had the skills to sew veins in people. So this learning you undertook uh, upon your return in 63, 64, what did that mean for patients? Well, at the, at the beginning, it didn't mean much <laughs> because um, the shunt surgery was already being done and it just switched over 
to general surgeons who did it. But uh, the other complex operations <clears throat> on the biliary tract and on the liver itself were things that were not done before by anybody. And I started to do those. And uh, I started do, doing the simpler things and then moved on to the more complicated things and mm -hmm. basically taught myself with the aid of reading papers and visiting other centers where people did that. So essentially establishing a, a specialty in liver surgery. Well, it was a subspecialty of general surgery. Right. Concentrating on surgery of the liver and the pancreas. Right. I understand that while you were pushing towards or pushing forward on this kind of specialization, you developed a nickname. And though my nickname actually arose earlier than my, <laughs> my career as a staff member. What was the nickname? Uh, nickname was the Hawk. That's actually, it started out as Hawkeye, as in Hawkeye Pierce. Oh, yes, from MASH. The, the surgeon in MASH. What did that derive from, do you know? How I did was, you get the Hawk? I was a surgeon, and uh, I was serious about work that I got involved in, especially competitive stuff. And you became, I'll spare you the details. <laughs> okay. You became widely recognized, though, in, the, in, in that time when, after your return, though, as a surgeon's surgeon. What did that mean? Well, it's, a, it's the biggest compliment you could give to a surgeon. Um, and it meant that I was doing my job well and uh, that I was a surgeon that other surgeons respected. I, I, I'm going to assume that you can draw a straight line then after nine years in terms of that reputation because in 1972, you are appointed head of the Division of General Surgery at Toronto General. And one of your first moves is to implement something called an income sharing agreement. What is that? Um, the practice that <clears throat> was in place, pretty widespread and it was the practice model uh, before the 60s, was independent practice, independent competitive private practice. Um, there was virtually, there was no insurance plan. Um, patients were responsible for paying their own fees. And doctors were independent practitioners. And um, when I returned, I uh, was provided with uh, a small office, a shared office with two other young surgeons in uh, the building that was called the Private Patients Pavilion. Public patients who could not afford it were in the college wing. And people who could afford it were in the private patient's pavilion. And uh, Griff Pearson and I, who were sharing this office, uh, decided that we would cover one another in practice so that we didn't have to come down to the emergency department every time 
of referring physician called rather than letting the surgeon on call look after their patients. I remember seeing nights when there were four general surgeons hanging around the emergency department at 11 o'clock at night waiting for OR time. So Griff and I, uh, we weren't partners, but we shared patients and we consulted one another frequently. And on really difficult cases, we would help one another in the operating room. And that was the beginning of my sense that we can do this in a better way. How so? My experience was that I had a very small salary from the university, and um, I was on my own as far as income was concerned. And the expectation was that I would do research in the lab, which took time, that I would do my teaching, and as I soon learned, the most junior of the staff people was given the biggest load of clinical teaching. And I recognized that it was difficult to do all those things at the same time. So when I became the division head, I was able to convince Bruce Tovey, who was division head, to join with me in an income-sharing arrangement with our newest recruit so that that young surgeon would have time to go to the lab. And by sharing our income, we would be supporting him to do the research that we didn't have time to do. So the, the concept in my mind was evolving of the shared responsibility just for clinical care in the hospital, but for the other academic expectations, research and teaching. And uh, I became convinced that the only way to do that was to form such a group. I offered that to all the other members of the Division of General Surgery, but they politely declined. <laughs> Why the resistance, do you think? I think that they were happy with the situation they were in. And uh, also, a chair of the department, two steps back, had attempted to impose a full-time system with pooled income that he would have some control over. So there was a lot of uneasiness about the whole concept. Now, I shouldn't say that uh, I didn't invent that independently. Griff Pearson formed a division of thoracic surgery, and when he did, that group shared their income. And Alan Hudson at St. Michael's, when he became head of the division of neurosurgery, that group at St. Mike's also pooled their income. So it, as far as we were concerned, it was a basic underlying necessity in order to fulfill the three things that are required of an academic surgical division, and that is clinical care at the highest level, cutting-edge research, and the best teaching you can find. 
I guess we should set some context maybe, Bernie, in early 70s when you take on this position as head of division of surgery is that approach in terms of the, the three pillars that you're talking about wasn't really the norm at that time, was it? Well, um, it was the expectation and it was the name of the game. It was widely understood to be the name of the game, but it was played differently in different places. Okay. And uh, I think the Toronto General is well ahead of the other Toronto hospitals in picking that up. Uh, I think Charlie Hollenberg, who was uh, chair of the Department of Surgery and physician-in-chief of the General before I became chair, just before I became chair, mm -hmm. had done that in the Department of Medicine, so it wasn't something mysterious from okay. another planet. All right. So what did this income sharing agreement mean for patients as it, you know, as this plan unfolded? Well, uh, the group practice concept meant that there was a physician available to look after them at any time. So I think that the quality of care improved in the group practice. And in our own group, there was group learning as well, especially in the beginning. The two people who I first recruited were Bob Stone and Bryce Taylor. And we often operated together because there was so much to learn. And that carried on throughout our careers. And was that a, not, a new direction in terms of that? This it definitely of was knowledge? not commonly done uh -huh. in those early days of competitive private practice. Hmm. So I'm guessing this had a ripple effect on the practice of surgery. I think it improved the practice of surgery. Sharing information, absolutely. At the time of your appointment in 1972 as head of division of surgery, what was your vision for the department as a whole? <clears throat> well, the department w was an outstanding place for clinical training and a very good place for teaching. And there were a small number of people who did really important research. But the way one did research and the dedication to research that had evolved in other centers, Boston being one of them, was a way ahead of what we were doing in Toronto. And I understood that a bit by reading what was coming out of Boston, but I didn't appreciate it, really appreciate it, until I went down there and uh, attended their conferences and ward rounds. Research was the basic underlying lifeblood of that department. Now, from a practical point of view, the clinical care and resident training of gen of general surgeons was better in Toronto than it was at the Brigham. So what I was looking for is to combine the existing outstanding clinical training in Toronto with the culture of 
research, doing research, and integrating research with clinical practice that I saw in Boston. So you begin, again, steps towards a transformation to try and inculcate <clears throat> research into the division of surgery? Yes. Um, How did that go? Well, I started by, with recruitment. The people that were recruited had to have an interest and commitment in research. And uh, we mostly sent them elsewhere to get training in research and then come back. And uh, one of my objectives was to bring them back and to develop a much stronger research presence uh, and also to make research one of the important qualities of our department. You also begin another transformation, if I have this correctly, in terms of specialized surgical expertise. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, again, when I arrived, uh, general surgeons were truly general. They did abdominal surgery, which is the majority of general surgery, but they also did traumatic orthopedic surgery. Uh, they did head and neck surgery. They did a little bit of plastic surgery. And uh, my feeling was that in order to be a leading department of surgery, we had to be a tertiary care center that did the most difficult of the difficult surgery and did it best. And we had to do the innovative surgery in these specialty areas. And to do that, I thought we had to have people who focused on specific areas. Again, Griff had this focused Griff on thoracic surgery. Right. And he made thoracic surgery into a separate division. It was part of general surgery when I joined the staff. So we had people train in vascular surgery. That was Wayne Johnson and Paul Walker. And eventually they split off and formed the separate division. Uh, Zane Cohen and then Robin McLeod trained in colorectal surgery. And they formed a group that eventually moved to the Mount Sinai, but one of the leading training programs in colorectal surgery. And um, we developed uh, specialists in surgical oncology and critical care. And that's the way I felt we had to do it. So the 70s are quite a moment then in terms of this kind of specialty, special expertise in surgery hadn't taken hold before that? Uh, it had, but it was on an ad hoc basis. There were surgeons who, general surgeons who became interested in a specific area, and then they became the local expert. But there was no group formed with specific training in that area. Something like that had started to develop in Boston where there might be a hospital that had people 
who are expert in surgery of the pancreas, for example, or colon surgery. I think uh, the private clinics in the United States um, were more likely to do this than the university centers. So over the 70s, like, how did this plan unfold? What, was there a beginning, middle, and end in terms of the specialties being established? No, they're not specialties. These are, well, two of them have become subspecialties, officially recognized by the Royal College. And uh, that's vascular surgery and colorectal surgery. But it was initiatives like ours that led to that developing. Again, what was the impact then for patients, this change? The impact was that they received better care. People who are doing a complex operation on the blood vessels is better served by a surgeon who does that all the time and does a lot of them than by a surgeon who does a lot of other things and very few of them. This uh, position as head of the Division of General Surgery, is it was uh, 72 to 82, if I'm not mistaken. Were there any other initiatives during that period that stand out for you? Um, well, <laughs> I was, I was uh, trying to, always trying to find ways to do things better, but uh, I think that my opportunity for implementing things arose when I became chair of the department. And then there were things that I was able to do that uh, changed the way surgery in Toronto was practiced. This is, you're referring to chair of the Department of Surgery at U of T, University yes. of Toronto. Well, let's move into that then. So again, in... Uh, in this position, this is now in 1982, you have a very clear vision in mind, correct? You're, it's shaped a lot, I guess, by your observations over the almost two decades at Toronto General. So tell us about what was your vision going into this new position, this new appointment as chair of Department of Surgery at U of T? Well, my vision was to develop a full-time system this shared income system across the whole department and to increase, to improve the level of training of residents who want to do research and to increase the interest in research and the number of faculty members who are seriously involved in research. That happened to be the objective of our dean as well. So it was a good place for me to be. And if I'm, again, have this correct in the chronology, one of your first moves and likely one of your most enduring legacies over your career is the creation of the Surgeon Scientist Program in around 84. Let's, let's start with that. What does that mean, the Surgeon Scientist Program? Well, it... I didn't start out imagining that anything would happen like what has happened from that. But what I was looking for is a way to improve the quality of the training in research of our surgical residents. Uh, 
Um, the situation was that there were a small number of surgeons who had good research labs for people to train in, like Bill Bigelow and Bob Salter at the Children's Hospital and a few others. But uh, there were a lot of people, including myself when I was doing research in the lab, that did not have the qualifications to train people. And the quality of training that was provided was not great. And there was substantial money being spent to train people who were not going to become surgical investigators. And that training was elsewhere, not Toronto? No, that was training in the Toronto system. I see. Um, so I thought we had to find a way to, to do better, and I put together a, a group of young people who were, or two people who were really good surgeon scientists, Steve Strasberg, who had just come back from Boston, a general surgeon, Charles Tatter, a neurosurgeon, who did his research training with a pathologist in Toronto and was a very serious scientist. Uh, and I asked them, along with Bryce Taylor, who was director of uh, the surgery, the whole Department of Surgery training program, um, to see if they could put together a draft of uh, a program for training surgeons in research. And it happened at that time <clears throat> that uh, the Faculty of Medicine had created the Institute of Medical Science, which is a branch of the School of Graduate Studies that provided um, PhDs or master's degrees and PhDs in science. But the Department of Surgery had no faculty members who were part of that institute. So they drafted a program using the vehicle of the Institute of Medical Science for surgical trainees to do a master's program or PhD program as their research training. And one of the requirements was that people had to be members of the institute, so our faculty members who qualified became members of the institute. Three people were registered in the first year, which I think was 1983. And it took off. It was just what we needed. They were in a formal program where they learned the fundamentals of how to do research, of how to be scientists, and they were working with surgeons in a field of their interest. So from three people who entered in 1983, we had somewhere around 40 people in the program a decade later. Hmm. And the program has grown somewhat since then. 
And most of the brightest lights in our department now are graduates of that program. What was, uh, I don't know if you can capture all of it, but give us a sense of the impact that it had, this surgeon scientist program had on the surgical profession. Well, I think that it was a key piece in research becoming part of the fabric of our department of surgery citywide. I think it's, it's understood that this is something that we do and it's something that's important. I mean, I would not have believed when we started this that someone in surgical training would take five years out in the middle of their training to compete a PhD. But a few of them do. And they're amazing people. What's been, is there a, again, trying to bring this back to patients, Bernie, is there a, a way to quantify how it's impacted patients? Well, the, the productivity of these people is amazing. Um, if we look at transplantation, um, Shaf Kishavji is a graduate of the surgeon scientist program. And uh, the work that he has done in um, perfusing organs in preparation for donation, being able to turn poor quality organs into good quality organs is fantastic. This is his ex vivo technique, yes. which he uh, developed, I imagine, through the ability of having this research expertise. Well, <laughs> he's a graduate of our program, and yeah. he had first-class re research training. Right. And he, uh, I'd, I'd like to say that the program had something to do with it. <laughs> It had quite an impact also, I think, in terms of it, it rippled across the country, right? Because in 1994, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada's Clinician Investigator Program, if I have that correct, was established. And it was modeled after your Surgeon Scientist Program. So from that point on, the program becomes the standard for clinician scientist training in faculties of medicine across the country. What, what does that mean to you? Well, I think that's a good thing. <laughs> You're so <laughs> understated. <laughs> Not, um, well, I had quite a bit to do with that. I was on the council of the college, and um, it, it took a fair amount of hard work to get that accepted by the college and implemented by the college. But it has been, and I think that it's been a value to those schools who have really taken it up. There's no medical school in Canada that's taken up the clinician, clinician investigator program uh, as enthusiastically as Toronto. Again, in reading about you, some of the accounts called your creation of the surgeon scientist program back in the early 80s revolutionary, visionary, and now decades later, what's, when you reflect on this, what's your assessment of the impact of your creation? I think it's been fantastic. 
beyond my wildest dreams. It's quite an achievement. It's something that's going to live on forever, it sounds like. It will be incorporated into how people do things in different ways. It's, you know, I don't think anything that is great in the early years is going to stay that way. Mm -hmm. But it's, I think it was a very important initiative. Bernie, talk to us about an, another change that you brought in when you were uh, at the University of Toronto in terms of hiring practice at the hospitals. The practice of uh, recruitment and hiring of surgeons at the teaching hospitals was pretty much something that was done by the hospital. And the appointments were appointments for life. That is, one had great difficulty in getting a surgeon or any physician who was appointed at a hospital to leave other than for cause. So <clears throat> I felt we could do better. And what I did was introduce uh, a system whereby the expectations of the hospital and the division head and the department chair were made clear to the person being recruited and that uh, the expectations of that individual were made clear by the hospital and by the department. For example, if an individual was recruited to do 50% uh, of his time in the laboratory, then the hospital had to have a laboratory ready and uh, the funds ready for him to do so. And if an individual was unable to fulfill their responsibilities or turned out to be lazy or for whatever reason, there had to be a way to end the appointment. So what I did was propose that at the time of hiring, we have a memorandum of agreement between the hospital and the t Department of Surgery and the individual, which outlined all of these things. And there would be a review at the end of three years to see whether things were going well. And if there weren't, there could be an extension. But the original appointment would be a temporary appointment, not a full appointment to staff. So that if at the end of a review, with or without an extension, and it was determined that the individual was just not fulfilling the job that they were expected to, then the appointment could be terminated. That didn't happen very often. I think during my term, there were only three people who did not have their appointment, their final appointment confirmed. But I think it was a major incentive for both the institution 
the department and the individual to get on with their job and do it. And there was another, uh, I guess, administrative effect uh, that you perhaps want to talk to us about in terms of communicating with CEOs at the hospitals when you were department chair at U of T. Yes. Um, the hospitals are tremendously important in the delivering the academic mission within their institutions. And uh, I thought that it was very important that I get to know the CEOs of the hospitals so that they'd have a good idea of what the university department was planning or doing or what it in fact did in the first place. And it was important for me to understand what the hospital issues were that might be making it hard for the academic mission to be delivered. So I arranged to meet at least once a year with the CEO of each of the major teaching hospitals um, along with the surgeon-in-chief of the hospital to discuss these things, <clears throat> these issues. And that turned out to be very valuable when we had our retreat that uh, dealt with the regionalization or centralization of tertiary care practices like trauma and transplantation. The fact that we understood one another um, was, I think, instrumental in them being able to accept the concept of regionalization of those services. The other important thing uh, that I needed to do was to deal with the fact that all of the senior leadership appointments in surgery across the city were appointments that were made locally and with no time limit. They were virtually appointments for life. The chair of the Department of Surgery was appointed for, and I was appointed for a five-year term after a search, a formal search, and at the end of five years, there was another review and a reappointment for a limited term of five years. Uh, when I became chair and looked carefully at the leadership across the department, there were people in senior positions who had been in those positions for more than 20 years. And not all of them were doing a bad job, but most of the people with that long tenure were marking time and were being bypassed by change. So I proposed a new system for making appointments and for accountability in leadership positions and renewal. And again, I had to get the agreement of the CEOs across the city, uh, the dean of the faculty, uh, in order to proceed with this. And I did get it. 
And uh, what we ended up with was an appointment process for chiefs of surgery, uh, university division heads, and hospital division heads that required a formal search and an appointment that was initially for five years and that had a formal review at the end of five years and then a reappointment for five years. And at the end of that second five years, um, another search for which the incumbent could be a candidate. Uh, I think that the introduction of this system has changed profoundly the nature of our department. Uh, the opportunities for really bright young people to be given positions of leadership improved remarkably. And that cadre of bright young people who were very good at their jobs, now provide the candidates for the very top positions in our department and beyond our department. So I, th I think this is one of the really, really important things that um, had happened to our department during my chairmanship. So I imagine the effect is, or one of the effects is, the ability to retain or sorry, to attract and retain the best is strengthened because of that hiring practice. Absolutely. And it's obviously something that has gone over well. It's still in, in place today. Yes. Let's stick with the mid-80s, this 80s period when you're uh, uh, the department chair at U of T, uh, Department of Surgery. Uh, you're also, besides pioneering the surgeon scientist program in medical academic practice at U of T, you're establishing a liver transplant program at TGH, at Toronto General? Talk to us about that. Well, I was, I was going to say I fell in love with the liver in Boston, but it <laughs> wasn't quite as dramatic as that. But an early I, influence. Yes, and I saw the opportunity. I think doing new things doesn't necessarily mean having them spring into your mind in a dream in the middle of the night. It's having an opportunity appear somewhere in your line of vision and recognizing that it's an opportunity. So I started in clinical practice doing shunt surgery and that evolved into doing more complex surgery. And in the back of my mind was liver transplantation surgery. And it's not possible to go from nothing to liver transplants, but the road to liver transplants was through the development of the HPB program. What was that? HPB? HPB, hepatic, pancreatic, and biliary. It means the liver and pancreas surgery program. So when I became busier, um, Bob Stone and later Bryce Taylor 
became part of the group that did the complex surgery of the pancreas and liver. And Steve Strasberg, not long after that, at the Western. And uh, before the Western and the General became the same hospital, I was going over to the Western to help Steve learn how to do liver surgery. And uh, it was that that put us on track. And uh, when transpl liver transplantation became established and transplant centers were being set up across the United States, we determined that this is what we were going to do. And then I sent Rudy Falk away to train in immunology in Sweden with the idea that he would come back and be part of the group that started liver transplants. And then I sent other people away also to train. And what we were looking for was to have a complete team. We had great anesthesia. Uh, we had great pathology involved in the liver surgery and liver pathology. We had good hepatologists, but they weren't interested in transplantation. So we spent a lot of time hiring, trying to hire Gary Levy to encourage him to come down from Sunnybrook, where they were also interested in starting a liver transplant program. Uh. <clears throat> so we finally did get a letter Gary to make up his mind and come down. And <laughs> uh, by then, we were doing operations in the pig lab. And we got the uh, approval of the Ministry of Health to get started, and we did our first transplant, I think, in 1985. Correct. Walk us through how that particular first came about at Toronto General. Well, we were... You were ready? We were ready you to do it. We were looking for the ideal patient. Uh, at times when experimenting with new surgical operations, um, especially a high-risk operation like transplantation, one selects patients with advanced disease. And, I mean, it is a problem because the more advanced the disease, the higher the risk of complications. So we hope to avoid that, and we found a patient with uh, a cancer that was not removable by any other means but transplantation. Um, but he didn't have advanced liver disease, so it made him a good candidate. And to do the operation, we had Leonard Makoka. He was a brilliant young surgeon who we'd sent down to Pittsburgh to work in his transplant program with Tom Starzl. Tom Starzl was the father of liver transplantation. So he went down there and got his training, and Tom kept him. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
It happens. It, it happens, yeah. and no hard feelings. So we got Leonard to come up and just to coach us through the first liver transplant, and it actually went beautifully. And uh, unfortunately, the patient developed complications of his immunosuppression and died of the complications. But we knew we could do it. And, uh, and the nursing team was terrific. Anesthesia was great. And so we, we knew we could do it. We waited, I think we waited another year before we did the next one. And that went well. And so we just picked it up from there. And I would then hazard a guess that sets the groundwork for the establishment of what we now call the multi-organ transplant unit at Toronto General. But I understand there was a crucial step before that could happen. It, it was this retreat in 1987. Can you tell us about <clears throat> the significance of well, this? Well, the background, <clears throat> when I became chair in 1982, we had a uh, departmental retreat where we discussed the issues of full-time practice and the various other issues that I thought we needed to address, uh, the importance of education and research. Um, at the time of that retreat, we hadn't come up with the surgeon scientist program yet, but um, the emphasis on research was something that I wanted to be clear. And uh, the communication with the department as a whole was important, so there was an opportunity there for feedback on what was coming. So You're that about was the 80, that the 82 was, retreat. Yeah, yeah, that was for the first term. At the beginning of my second term, we had another retreat. Okay. And uh, this was based on my observation that the some of the most difficult surgical problems like massive trauma and transplantation were being done in multiple hospitals and our resources, our intellectual and physical resources were being stretched and that we can do much better if we centralized these and made them into real centers of excellence within our university family of hospitals. So we had a retreat, and among the things that we talked about there were trauma and transplantation. Kidney transplantation was being done at about four or five different hospitals. Cardiac transportation, transplantation, which was in its infancy, had already been attempted at three hospitals. Liver transplantation had been done at the general, but they were gearing up to do it at Sunnybrook. So it didn't make sense. So we had a retreat, but in addition to Department of Surgery members, we invited the heads of medicine and pathology and anesthesia. We asked the administration of the hospitals to send representatives, and we asked the Ministry of Health to send representatives. 
and we talked about regionalization. And um, we developed the consensus that uh, trauma and transplantation should be regionalized, that we should have two level one trauma centers in the city and one monthly organ transplantation center in the city. And then the most interesting thing was that we were able to develop standards for what the hospitals would have to provide and what they needed in order to create those centers in general terms. And then the ministry set up groups to put out RFPs, requests for proposals from the hospitals. So the hospitals were in a competition. And Sunnybrook and St. Mike's were selected as the trauma centers for Toronto, for the GTA. And TGH was selected as the multi-organ transplant center. Pretty significant retreat because that's a setup it that was. still exists today. I I couldn't have dreamed that that would all happen, but it did. How, how you know, pulling all these, I don't know that they're all necessarily like-minded people, but I'm, I imagine very strong-willed people together to get that kind of consensus. How do you do that? Well, if the concept is good, then people who are serious about what they're doing, like CEOs of the hospitals, I think, will support it. So two years later, the multi-organ transplant program at Toronto General is approved. You're the interim director. What did this mean for transplant patients in Ontario? Well, what it meant was that the quality of the work being done in this multi-organ transplant center would be better than it could be at four, three or four different places in the city, and that it had the potential to be one of the leading transplant centers in the world. And uh, I wasn't going to be around to do that because I was getting near the end of my term as chairman of the department, and I was just about burnt out. And so I retired from transplantation at that time. And uh, we had an international search, and Gary Levy was appointed as the director of the multi-organ transplantation program, and he's done a fantastic job. So it's, it's 89. So that's 39, 30 years since this multi-organ transplant unit is established, and it now has a worldwide reputation like you just mentioned, like for the, in terms of the number of transplant it performs, the living donor program is second to none, the amazing breakthroughs such as Dr. Kashafji's ex vivo technique. Could you ever have envisioned this outcome when you first got it established? No, I certainly didn't. I saw the potential, 
And it's the people who were recruited after we set up the multi-organ transplantation that really did it. The liver transplantation program um, was not an internationally known program when we set up the MOTP, but David Grant, as the head of surgical liver transplantation program, has done a fantastic job. And uh, the other surgeons in the lung transplant program, I mean, Joel Cooper was the person who started the lung transplant program, and he really put Toronto on the map for lung transplant. That's right. And Schaff has done an unbelievable job since then. You're listening to the UHN Oral History Project, conversations with former leaders of the University Health Network, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm Christian Cote from UHN Public Affairs, and we're speaking today with Dr. Bernie Langer. So, Bernie, we're, we're moving into the 1990s. Uh, in, in 1992, your, as you mentioned before, the, your stint at – your 10-year stint at U of T Department of Surgery uh, ends. So you're 60 and you take your first sabbatical leave uh, to recharge your bat- batteries, I imagine. And I understand you also go back to school? Uh, yes. <clears throat> I had uh, become aware of the importance of a new field of research, clinical epidemiology. Clinical studies, and there have been probably millions of them by now, purely clinical studies where one observes what happens when you do this or that, um, have... uh, serious limitation in adding to actual knowledge that can help you advance clinical practice. The field of clinical epidemiology involves applying the scientific medicine to the clinical studies of patients. And uh, it involves a lot of mathematics, especially statistics and rules of setting up clinical studies. And this is something that was born during my, at the end of my undergraduate career and graduate training. So I recognized its importance and I didn't know enough about it. And one of uh, the centers that was one of the leading centers in clinical epidemiology was McMaster University, which is handy just down the road from Toronto. And so I did the uh, preliminary program in clinical epidemiology and biostatistics at Mac for six months. And it was great being a student again. At age 60. (laughs) And not having to be awakened in the middle of the night. Uh, because of a sick patient. But uh, this is also something, I'd been aware of this obviously during my term as chairman and I encouraged people to 
get training in clinical epidemiology uh, if they wanted to do clinical research. And uh, Robin McLeod was the first of these people, and she's had a wonderful career and has been very productive in clinical trials and uh, various clinical studies and guideline development. So in, in 93, I'm guessing, 1993, you return to Toronto General and you establish or you're instrumental in establishing the oncology surgical cancer specialty there. Can you talk to us about that? Uh, no. While I was chair, <clears throat> um, I thought that we needed to have surgeons trained in cancer surgery. Okay. Uh, in the United States, they were far, far ahead of us. In fact, they had hospitals dedicated to cancer surgeries that were basically surgical hospitals. It's interesting that in Toronto, we had a hospital dedicated to cancer treatment, but it started out as a radiation therapy hospital. The Princess Margaret, it Correct. became. That started as a unit at the TGH and then moved to Wellesley Street when it became too large for TGH. So uh, at that time, I thought we needed people trained in cancer surgery. I'd been to the MD Anderson uh, before I came back to the general, and uh, I could see what they could do, what people dedicated to cancer could do, and I thought we needed to have people like that in our division too. So we started with uh, Lorne Rothstein as the first, and Eulo Ambus was the second one, and so forth. Um, it was during my term as chair that uh, we set up an oncology program, and uh, Hartley Stern was the first head of our oncology program, and. There was an oncology committee involving all of our hospitals in surgical oncology committee, and eventually we developed a training program in surgical oncology. And uh, Bob Bell was the head of that program for some time, and Carol Swallow became head of the program, and uh, I'm not sure who is now. How did you finally come to retire? Pardon? How did you finally come to retire? I was tired. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. I I watched quite a few people who uh, had difficulty retiring and who mm -hmm. hung around the hospital basically, and I think it was because they had committed their lives so completely to surgery that they didn't have the tools to do something different. Outside of working? Outside of surgery. Outside of surgery. So I promised myself that I was going to retire when I was still at the top of my game and do something else. And you did. You established, uh, again, an institute that is still here today, the Canadian excuse me, the Canadian Patient Safety Institute in 2000. Well... What was behind I, that? 
I I would hesitate to say that I established the Canadian Patient Safety Institute. When I was president of the college from 2000 to 2002, um, I organized a uh, mini-conference at our annual meeting on patient safety. I was convinced by one of my colleagues um, who was from the United States uh, who is very interested in patient safety that this was something that we should somehow increase awareness of in Canada. Uh, and he knew all the people uh, in the game. So I, I organized this symposium at the Royal College meeting and we invited the leaders in patient safety from the United States and one from Australia. And the more I got into this, planning this, uh, the more important I realized this was. And so I got to know Bruce Barraclough from Australia pretty well. And he had retired from surgery and become head of the Australian Patient Safety Institute, funded by the federal government, um, which developed guidelines, uh, provided funds for research grants, and um, provided education programs for people people in patient safety. So I thought that it might be interesting to bring together uh, the people involved in healthcare general to this symposium we we're having and then uh, organize a meeting afterwards to discuss the creation of the Canadian Patient Safety Institute. So we invited the CMA and uh, Canadian Nursing Association, all the provincial ministries of health, the federal minister of health, ministry of health. We managed to get $50,000 from the federal ministry to help fund the symposium. And I... Uh, asked John Wade, who was uh, an anesthetist and somebody who had done research in the early days in patient safety, to chair a subcommittee after our meeting. So we had the symposium. We had the meeting with all these representatives, including ministries of health, and they agreed that this was a good idea and we should set up a group to specifically plan the detail. And John Wade agreed to chair that group. And they went on and got a substantial grant from the federal government and they created the Canadian Patient Safety Institute. Well, what was the gap or what was the need for such a body? Well, the need was not noticeable by physicians in individual practice, but it was demonstrated by 
studies that showed how errors and faulty processes were creating harm and much more harm than the individual physician was aware of. And the effect was it would bring attention to these issues to correct and perhaps change practice? Yes, absolutely. Change practice and change processes of practice too. It strikes me, Bernie, wherever you went during your career, throughout each position and new challenge, you were a change agent. Well, uh, change was going to take place no matter what. Life is not static. (laughs) Practice is not static. Change is going to take place. And sometimes it's for the good and sometimes it's for the not so good. And I think that people in positions of leadership should not resist change. They shouldn't embrace change for change's sake, but they should look for how to steer change in a way that's going to be beneficial. Change is also, I think, for many people, disruptive, unnerving. What was your strategy then in terms of how to harness whatever goodwill, practicality, but how did you bring people along to support your initiatives? Well, I've never tried to force something on people. And uh, in an organization, I always made sure that I I was able to convince a small group of people And if I couldn't convince the small group, I sure as hell was not going to impose it on the big group. And uh, I think think a mistake is made by some people when they try to exclude those who honestly oppose their views. So when... I was working on a guideline for pancreatic cancer surgery that involved regionalization of that sort of surgery. Um, On this planning committee, I made sure to have the OMA head of general surgery, who was a practitioner in a small town, on the committee because I knew that the largest opposition was going to come from small communities and I wanted a voice on the committee for those communities and also when all was said and done and the complaints came in I could certainly direct them (laughs) to you could count on his I could count on his support (laughs) it's kind of ingenious Make sure they're inside the tent as opposed to outside. Well, it isn't genius. It's common sense. Uh, You worked in a very high-stakes profession, surgery and transplant. How did you handle the pressure? Well, I was able to get out. I had – I tried to limit the time that I was under pressure. 
I had a farm. I had a family. I had a very supportive wife. And I had other interests. But it was, I would say, it was the family and my wife who I relied on most. They helped clear your head of <laughs> Yeah, bring thinking. me down to earth sometimes when I got too high and pick me up when I was too low. It's a high-stakes situation. I mean, and you were in this career for decades in terms of surgery. And I imagine failure also is a part of daily life. And it's not something we're really taught how to deal with. So I'm, I'm wondering how, you know, what was your approach to failure? A failure was hard. I mean, the, the worst failures were losing patients you thought you shouldn't have lost. And I've certainly had some of those. And um, I think the successes help to balance it out. And how do you get past those things to become, you know, good for your patients moving forward? I think you have to just recognize that you're not perfect. And... Uh, Apologize to yourself <laughs> and move on. Be kind to yourself. Yeah. What was your approach to mentoring people? I loved mentoring people. I got the same kind of satisfaction of seeing my residents succeed, my colleagues, my junior colleagues who I hired to succeed as I got from seeing my children succeed. I loved it. And was there a particular approach of how you treated them, how you talked to them, how you critiqued them? I treated them as adults. I found that that worked with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> and so I tried it on my colleagues. One of your legacies is, I understand, 70, you can correct me if I'm wrong, 70-plus fellows you trained who practice liver and transplant surgery throughout the world. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Well, not in every country of the world. But, <laughs> but all over. But, uh, yeah, North, North America and Europe. What's that mean to you? A big family. <laughs> it means a lot. I don't know if you're familiar, I think you are, Ed Shorter's book, yes, Partnership for Excellence. It describes you as one of the great builders of the division of surgery in the late 20th century. What would you like to be remembered for? Well, a good husband and father, for starters, and a contributor a contributor. I think there's no question you achieved that. Dr. Bernie Langer, thank you for your service to UHN, and we appreciate your time today to share your experiences while leading UHN. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This is Christian Cote for the UHN Oral History Project. Thanks for listening. <laughs>